today is September 9th, 2010. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Elizabeth Quinlan. She's an Associate Professor of Biology in the Neuroscience and Cognitive Science Program at the University of Maryland. Her research centers around mechanisms of synaptic plasticity in adult versus juvenile neocortex through all levels of analysis. She um, recently demonstrated a reactivation of ocular dominance plasticity in the adult visual cortex of rodents using uh, visual deprivation, which we'll talk about. And um, currently, I guess her lab looks at how experience-driven molecular events couple to long-term changes in synaptic function. So hi, um, Elizabeth. Betsy? Should we call you Betsy? for Betsy. Betsy, okay. Um, around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hello. And Todd Troyer. Hello. Fidel Santa Maria. Hi. And me, I'm your host, Soma Karashi. So you use ocular dominance shifts as an index of the available synaptic plasticity in the visual cortex to um, presumably figure out some general principles that apply to how experience and age change um, a network's capacity for plasticity within a a critical period. Um, Given what you and your colleagues have been working on, which we'll, I guess, talk about in more detail in a bit, do you you think it's still relevant to think in terms of critical periods? Is, is is, is, Is the age of the critical period kind of still around, given the manipulations that you and your colleagues are doing? Well, the critical period in its original formulation that had a very discrete onset and a very discrete offset that was irreversible, I think that the age of thinking about a critical period in that way, that rigorously, I think that that those days are over. But the idea of a critical period still helps to shape hypotheses and drive experiments, because clearly... There's a very significant dependence on history and age that determines the qualities of plasticity over the life of a synapse or the life of an organism. And so that there are there are epochs where plasticity is easier to induce and, and the threshold for the induction plasticity does change over a lifetime. But there's not an absolute end to the type of receptive field plasticity that can be demonstrated with uh, the monocular deprivation paradigm. This is probably uh, this is probably going too far, but the whole critical period idea was a giant idea that included stuff like Lorenz's work on imprinting and ducts and all that kind of thing. And these things built on each other and formed a single thing. And most of us who, are, who grew up with all of that uh, have the idea that. Hugo and Weasel's critical period was looking at brain mechanisms that would be somehow comparable to imprinting and dust and all these other cases, and all had to do with the, with the, the actual establishing the structure of the nervous system. And it seemed to me that, at least for the ocular dominance, that's just wrong. It isn't, it isn't the initial establishment of the structure of the nervous system because you can rearrange it, you can recreate that Anytime you feel in development, even in adult animals. Mm-hmm. It just seems huge. I wonder if there's something you could do with a duck to get it to imprint again after it's already grown up. I mean, maybe there is no, maybe there is no, like, childhood at all in that sense. Is that, is that what you're Well, no, you're asking, you're asking if, if um, other forms of plasticity have a similar uh, susceptibility to being to being reversed, and I think that it's hard for me it's hard for me to think of the imprinting in terms of imprinting. But you know, think in terms of some of the other examples like acquisition of a second language. 
and, and, things, and, and things of that nature. I think that maybe the problem has been in the way that we've been thinking about a critical period. I think that what the recent work suggests is that plasticity is latent and it is being actively constrained by ongoing activity. And so that there's a that there's that the that the that the, de, that the decline in plasticity is a decline in the, the the developmental decline in plasticity is due to ongoing activity and not something that is fundamentally changing in the anatomy of the circuitry. That's great news. I mean, you can teach in environmental You just have yeah. to create some kind of special environment that, that to unmask to unmask. You have to unmask. So the plasticity is there, but you don't. Needed, you could also argue that it's advantageous to constrain plasticity. Yeah, that's that's my question, right? Like, um, is there is in um, this critical period or crystallization period in other animals? Is is it real? Is there does it cover a function in evolution? Uh, does it make the animal better suited for year three or four or five or its life? But it's a, it is an epiphenomenon that because the system is not in equilibrium and then we see these uh, switches uh, going around, like a little oscillation. Uh, so I don't know what you think about it. So for ocular dominance plasticity, as the animal is uh, growing from birth till, till puberty, okay, the head is growing as well. And actually the distance between the eyes is increasing as the head Grows. And so the receptive fields have to be continuously adjusted with every movement of the eyes as they separate. But once you reach an adult head size, then you no longer are required to remap the receptive fields. So that's the argument for high levels of plasticity, you know, giving a distinct advantage, so allowing that continuous remapping. You just don't need it after mm -hmm. you're done growing. So is that done growing everywhere in the yeah, physical growth? I mean, is that seems like a V1-centric V1 view of growth. It's like once your head gets the same right size, well, I mean, you're you, done. But, <laughs> but, you, but there are similar, there's a similar time course for uh, uh, receptive to plasticity to a sensory cortex based on just a change in body size. Yeah, I, but I think we should I think we should get rid of the period in the critical period. Right? I mean it sounds like it's just it's the critical state. I mean that's what you're talking about is a state is it in a is the brain or this area is in a plastic state well, I would get for, for you know susceptible to plasticity, I guess. But it seems I mean, because of what you said it's susceptible to plasticity because of the body's growing. Right, it is. There is no intrinsic. I, mean, I just want to say that, based from that hypothesis, then there is no intrinsic uh, neuronal mechanism that uh, is exploiting the efficiency of coding or anything. It's just adaptation to the changes of the size of the antenna. <clears throat> and the antenna is the eyes or the area of your skin or anything else. Right, or how many your your nose is getting bigger. Right. Uh, so there's nothing within the nervous system that is it is not like these waves of patterns in the retina before being born that are necessary to actually generate the structure of the brain. Right. That that those are crucial 
mechanisms to actually end up with the architecture we have in the right? Well, it sounds like this is still like that, in a sense, that that plasticity is required to establish the right architecture in the brain. It's just that you can go back and reestablish mm-hmm. a new architecture if you could recreate the right circumstances. But you can't really go back to the point at which your retina had not yet fully, all the cells had divided. You can't go back to the embryonic state. And, and so, in fact, what I'm doing know is a fact. But if you can't go back and do all of that stuff over again, if your nervous system is capable of it, it's okay. Because you're never going to go back to the embryonic state. But, it, but for some of these other things, adjusting for ocular dominance, if you if you uh, if you're temporarily blinded and, uh, and then you see again, some of those things there might be states in which that would be advantageous too, and it probably things bad things happen to people that could be reversed if you knew the rules that govern that relearning right. those things. Yeah. So it's 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 kind of cool to think about. Um, the, the all of this is a so with the stuff that you've looked at where you find a, a plasticity ocular dominance plasticity in in adults that looks a lot like juveniles and talking about it in terms of a reversion or rejuvenation but I think it's equally interesting to look at what's not the same in the types of plasticity that you see in adults in juveniles because there are qualitative differences right so could you talk about some of that what those differences are and how they're intriguing or why they're not intriguing and what they tell us about the two this maybe underlying mechanisms and that it maybe address this question that we've just talked about. The difference between the the reactivated So actually, we've looked at a number of different levels. We've looked at the molecular level and the biochemical level. We've looked at the physiological level, both in vivo and in slices, collaboratively, and uh, at the behavioral level. And we don't see differences between dark exposure and juveniles. And so that's, that's why we use the phrase that dark exposure rejuvenates the visual cortex, because in all of our assessments to date, the, the response of the adult cortex that has been dark exposed is, is similar to what we see in juveniles. So at the other levels, though, there, there are there differences? So you're saying they're not? We don't, see, aren't we don't see any differences. I think that's remarkable. So, so. I mean, that's a remarkable thing that uh, that you don't see. It's a really huge. So there, there, there's at the at the um, at the at the level of, of acuity, whether we do it physiologically, behaviorally, at the level of anatomy, which is some data that I I, I didn't show today. We see um, similar recovery of spine density and things like that back up to normal levels. Um, expansion of the uh, of the innervated region in the cortex. So one of the most famous ocular dominance experiments that had with monocular deprivation showed that the ocular dominance columns actually become bigger in the sense that the axons must have yeah. spread out because yeah. now these axons. You can reproduce that, so meaning the axons fields go out and then shrink again? We haven't done that. And so we're just... We're just exploring the use of transsynaptic markers so that we can label thalamal cortical afferents. But it's a beautiful experiment. We haven't done it yet. We've only looked at the postsynaptic contribution 
she looks at it herself. That goes very deep into our idea of critical period. Because uh, it's one of the things we brought, really thought was the reason this has to be done in juveniles is because they're the only ones whose axons can actually grow around and make new synapses yeah. and create new branches of their <laughs> axons and do rights and all that stuff. And if that stuff is also reversible, then the notion that somehow the adult brain is is or should be capable of, of that kind of anatomical plasticity would also be done. Although, I mean, just to move the conversation to on the other hand, it's like there is a lot of evidence, I guess, that with aging, aging, you don't, it's not that plastic. The brain is not that plastic. It's undeniable that there's a difference. Right? So what would be that different? I mean, sure, maybe the ratio, you can increase a certain percentage the, that plasticity, right? But the plasticity of the brain seems to to get reduced in absolute terms from juveniles to uh, to old uh, individuals, right? And and there's also evidence that not only is the adult cortex less plastic than the juvenile cortex, but the site of plasticity is different. And mm -hmm. one of the differences between a juvenile cortex and an adult cortex is that, the, that there's a low threshold for activity-dependent changes in the synaptic strength at the primary feed-forward excitatory pathway. Whereas if you're doing some, um, if, you're, if, you're, if you're changing receptive fields or doing some perceptual learning or the type of plasticity that can be demonstrated in adult V1, that those paradigms are specifically targeting um, cortico-corticosynapses, so mm -hmm. that, the, that, the, that the locus of the plasticity is actually different in juveniles and adults. Hmm. I wonder if this experiment on CFOS has been done, have been done in aging animals in which you induce a learning process or just a, induce LTP, for example, like introducing electrodes in the, in the hippocampus and and then you just track this early gene expression across the hippocampus or the cortex. And then if they have done um, in aging animals, and if that just shows like that, that is less spread out. I don't, I don't know if anybody knows that. Yeah. I don't think that's been done. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting experiment, but it doesn't. If 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 you want to ask about the locus, it doesn't allow you to know if the excitation is coming from. Feed forward. Yeah, no, no, not that locus, but at least yeah. the spread. I mean, for yeah. the same amount of stimulation, does it spread as much in the cortex? Just, it is a very rough um, number. I mean, originally that, that this experiment is a very um, it's a very rough, rough approximation to understand how far these um, um, signals will spread, at least in gene expression, uh, throughout the cortex, and then if that changes over. Time, I don't think it, uh, I mean, in this case, it looked like adults couldn't learn ocular dominance over again. But if you just put them in the dark for 10 days, 10 days is the right amount of time, then they can't. So you say, I'm old, I can't, my brain is messed up, I can't learn LTP anymore. Well, maybe there's just uh, something you need. You need some time in the isolation you need some box. Time in the <laughs> Remember the sensory deprivation chambers? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's... <laughs> you just spent 10 days in there. I'm going to get one just, of those. You just spent 10 days in the sensory mm -hmm. deprivation tank and come back and... Michael Jackson. Well, we could be one at the University of Maryland. Yeah. Hmm? 
It was actually at the Maryland Psychiatric Institute. Oh, really? That's what, it, that's what it really was. And uh, and that whole arrangement was, was there. Good presence. Yeah. Well, he was right. So is there anything, is there anything different about, because um, people also debate whether primary sensory cortex is different um, than other cortex. When we talk about plasticity of adult cortex, like these are, each thing is one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that seems like one of the ways that you might get at, um, uh, if you start to, if you start to get at differences of, of primary versus association areas, that one of the places you might expect plasticity rules and balances to be different. Is it people or are people kind of reproducing things in different places? No, the, the assumption is that the, so that the further you get away from the thalamus, you move from V1, then you move to V2, that the further you move away, the, um, the, the, the longer you can prolong robust plasticity. So there's a developmental constraint, you know, first at the thalamal cortical synapse and then, and then, and then upstream from there. But, but, no one's, but no one's looked at it that I know of. So the, the, the hallmarks of synaptic maturation across cortex are pretty much the same. The, the um, excitation inhibition ratio changes and the, the NR to subunit composition changes, those are all uniform and presumably underlie some of It's same. been described, the series has been described in a number of different cortical regions. The, 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 the onset of the of this the maturational program is slightly different. So we pose that kind of the rostral way of maturation in the cortex. But it's not sensory versus high order sensory versus low order sensory. It is oxidative versus nitrogen. So is it is, is it are you able to, to distinguish or dissociate age related um, uh, changes age age induced changes in plasticity from uh, experience induced changes? Absolutely. So experience is a better predictor of the amount of plasticity than, than chronological age. And it's been known for a long time that you can keep the visual cortex in a sort of suspended, youthful state by raising them in the dark. So they go straight into the dark room at birth, and they, they, they retain very high levels of ocular plasticity, irrespective of chronological age. And uh, so it's very easy to say. huge clue for you. Yes. I mean, looking at it in retrospect. Looking at it in retrospect. But it's interesting because the this idea that critical periods were irreversible basically kept anybody from asking what would happen if you put an adult animal in the dark. And it's, a, it's an easy experiment to do. And I think that if you look at some of the old literature, like look at what dark rearing does to receptive fields and how plastic things are retained, it doesn't. It, it, it's not perhaps that surprising. What's surprising is that it's reversible. But that, so was, that wasn't. But that that uh, kind of contradicts. Well, if you put these two things together, what Charlie was saying about a ros- uh, rostral to caudal or caudal rostral uh, uh, d- development of, uh, of, of plastic, plastic maturation, right? Yeah. Because presumably, if they're in the dark, but they can hear whatever, that their occipital cortex is really immature. But as the rest of the stuff go forward, it gets stuck there. If you want or something, I mean, I don't know. It's in, it's inconsistent with age, or whether this is age, or that's is something that global. Is that dependent on experience, or is that dependent on age, or something like that? Well, there's an age, there's an ex, there's ex, there's experience dependent aspects and experience independent aspects, and so. I mean, the interesting thing, just to go back to the dark ring for a second, is that 
if every aspect of maturation of visual cortex was dependent on experience, then you would expect, so remember that there's there's three stages. There's this pre-critical period stage where the animals are you know, binocular, but they don't have any plasticity. And then there's the, the, the peak plasticity stage, and then there's the post-critical period stage. Well, if every aspect of that maturation was experience-dependent, then dark-reared animals would have no plasticity because they'd be stuck in the pre-critical point of development. But dark-reared animals have robust plasticity. So what the dark-reared experiment also does is it separates the experience-dependent aspects of maturation from the experience-independent aspects. Raising the animals in the dark does not negatively influence the development of other sensory systems. It actually, I don't know if it accelerates, but it certainly um, heightens the sensitivity, reduces the threshold, heightens the sensitivity of other sensory systems as, you know, as the you know, super somatic sensation of, of blind individuals is well known. You can, you can, you can, induce that in animals by darkening them from birth. So they have lower auditory thresholds. Animals that are darker from birth have better sound discrimination, lower perceptual detection, lower stimulus detection thresholds. So there's, a, there's an interaction. I'm sort of interested in, can I? I'm sort of interested in the role of inhibition because another old idea that people outside the field even people outside the field knew about the ocular dominance con literature was that it was it was a thought of to be a sort of competition between the lateral geniculate inputs that represented the two eyes, and so um, and, and so it was basically a thalamal cortical synapse that was the basis of the competition, mm-hmm. and so you could think about it in inhibition free way. But your work seems to be saying that inhibition is the key. There may still be a competition, but that inhibitory uh, inner neurons are the key to that plasticity. And somehow, uh, plasticity even on the input to the inhibitory inner neuron may play an important part in the competition because the competition stops if the inhibitory neurons are not working well. In, in some way, I don't know that I really understand the, the way that they're not working out. But when they're not, uh, but they are, is it wrong that they are the key to the plasticity? Well, the original emergence of ocular dominance still seems to be a competition between the thalamic afferents that that's, you know, serve the left eye versus serve the right eye. And that original establishment of ocular dominance, which is present at birth, when feed-forward inhibition is very low, um, that's apparently independent of inhibition. So if you were actually to look at the response properties with single units over a large population of, of, of neurons, some would be primarily dominated by the contralateral eye, some would be primarily dominated by the ipsilateral eye, some would be truly binocular and have equal response strength following stimulation of either eye. And that level of competition, the competition to drive the output of the postsynaptic cell, happens, uh, is a competition that appears to be established early and is independent. That is independent of inhibition. It's the the ability to rewire it. So uh, the idea is that during that early developmental stage, 
inhibitory interneurons are not present or are not firing or have not made synapses yet, uh, or, or is the evidence less direct? It's like, if you block inhibition, that stuff all so So the, our data with the knockout mice speaks to that a, a, a bit. And we see, um, we, we, we see normal ocular dominance and normal contralateral bias in those, in, in those animals, despite the fact that there's a subthreshold level of, of, of inhibition. And so that suggests that ocular dominance and the innate contralateral bias, which is experience-dependent, some of the two-to-one ratio in the contralateral to ipsilateral eye preference um, is, is experience dependent. As I showed, if you raise animals in the dark, the contralateral bias is reduced relative to the contralateral bias you see in, a, in, a, in an experienced animal. And so there's some experience dependent um, enhancement of contralateral bias, but that, that exists even in the nerve knockout mice that have no acubidominus plasticity. So there's a separation between the original um, formation of ocular preference and the ability to change ocular preference based on changes in patterned activity. And inhibitory interneurons are important in the second of those, but less so in the first. Even though they may still be there, they may still be inhibition, but the inhibition just isn't uh, pivotal in, in running the process. Some, some of it seems like it's really, you know, we're running up against, we really run up against the language of thresholds and other kinds of things. Because if you don't see something, um, we'll take it for example the inhibition, whether it's pivotal or not early, maybe the thresholds for changing things would be uh, just way lower, the original setting up some, some dominance. So lots of things could contribute, mm -hmm. but you may need something really strong to change it later. So it's not like the mechanisms are really that different. It's just that whatever you need to do, you really need to muck around with the inhibition now because you really need something a lot to move it. And so it's just that the, the bar has been raised, not that the mechanisms are necessarily different. And if you've got things, especially if you get anything with a U-shaped curve, where it pokes above a threshold for change, sorting out these multiple mechanisms is really hard. Uh, and you get these post hoc explanations of thresholds of when this and what's necessary, and you, you're you in some state that you think that this is the strongest one or this one works, but maybe you're just in the wrong or the wrong little window for some other mechanism. So you get to poke on these mechanisms of where and what. It seems confusing. Well, there's overlapping. There's mechanisms that overlap in time, overlap in space, overlap in influence, share signaling mechanisms. So it, it, it is confusing. But I think that I was thinking in a way that's very similar to the way that you were just saying, maybe it's just that the threshold has changed. And so in, I was thinking about that with the, with the NARP knockout mice. So the NARP knockout mice don't respond to MD as, there's no oculodomus plasticity in juveniles, then there's no oculodomus plasticity in adults. And that can be, that can be a never-ending uh, uh, experiment because you're just not right in the right window. So we did what I thought would demonstrate that these NARP mice did in fact have some plasticity, the NARP knockout mice did in fact have some plasticity by doing the chronic monocular deprivation, closing one eye for 100 days, and they still can't shift. So I think that that's 
telling us something very important, and it's telling us that despite the fact that there are overlapping mechanisms, none of them can compensate for the absence of NARP at this synapse. And given how much homeostatic plus you know, all of the all of the mechanisms that seem to be able to you know, homeostatically regulate output in, in circuits and all the different ways that you can change synaptic strength based on changing the input to the synapse, that it's remarkable that those NARC knockout lights cannot compensate someplace else in the circuit to change receptive fields. And so it suggests that there's not as much overlapping parallel mechanisms as one would have thought. Just for our listeners' benefit, could you go a bit more into the specifics of the, of the NARP protein and where it's expressed and how it ties into your story of what exactly is happening at these parvalbumin interneurons? So NARP is an acronym for Neuronal Activity Regulated Pentraxin. It's a protein that is expressed with immediate early gene kinetics that was originally identified by Paul Worley of Johns Hopkins University. The Worley lab has recently shown that neurons secrete NARP. It's an activity-dependent secretion because it can be blocked by TTX. And uh, excitatory neurons make and secrete NARP. And then NARP is sequestered it's, it, it, it's sequestered by parvalbumin-positive interneurons. It interacts with a neuronal pentraxin receptor, NPR, that's a transmembrane protein in the postsynaptic cell. And it is thought to couple amperoceptors to the extracellular matrix. NARP is a secreted protein. It stays extracellular and does not have a transmembrane domain. So uh, NARP... Uh, levels are regulated by activity, so an increase in activity increases NARP levels. It also will increase the size of the EPSC and the number of amperoceptors. It's been shown both with Western blocks and immunohistochemistry. And a decrease in activity decreases NARP at excitatory synapses under parvalbumin. Positive neurons also decreases amperoceptor numbers and decreases the EPSC. So the idea is that NARP is available, that the, the NARP is a is a is a is a part of a heteromeric complex that allows amperoceptors to be um, locked down in the synapse, and the ability to release or lock them down is important in the ability of the excitatory synapses and inhibitory neurons to respond to changing patterns and activity. And NARP uh, transgenic uh, mice that are that are missing both copies of NARP. You do not see activity-dependent scaling uh, at excitatory synapses under inhibitory neurons. That's been shown in culture, and Chris McBain's lab has shown that uh, that that uh, there's a deficit in plasticity in EPSCs onto parvalbumin positive neurons on the, on the, on the on a potentiation of EPSC amplitude at those synapses in, a, in hippocampus synapses. So. Uh, what we've shown is that animals that are missing this protein do not have ocular plasticity at any at any time in development, young or old, or response to any duration of MD. We've tried three three days and seven days, as well as seventy days. Even if, following seventy days of monocular deprivation, we don't get an ocular dominant shift. But in all of those cases, ocular plasticity can be activated by uh, the, by diazepam, which is a benzodiazepine. It's a positive allosteric modulator enhancer of a 
GABA A receptor activity. So are you do are you involved in any kind of clinical work with amblyopes, or is this just all when when our first paper describing the phenomenon came out, I started getting emails from people all over the world mm-hmm. saying, you know, I'm 50 years old, I am blind in one eye, I'm severely amblyopic. Every doctor I've ever seen in my entire life told me there's nothing they can do for me. Tell me how long I should sit in the dark. Because the paper was posted on some blog sites and some websites, some OD sites uh, all over the world. And so people started writing me. People are so willing to try to improve their vision that they would go sit in the dark for 30 days if they, if that would encourage plasticity well, recovery. You should contact, contact those miners in Colombia. There's a remarkable story of Sue Berry, who's a, who's, a, who's a neuroscientist who was one of these individuals who was, who was blind in one eye, severely amblyopic, blind in one eye. Every doctor she ever saw said, there's nothing we can do for you because you passed a critical period. And she started... She started working with a behavioral optometrist uh, in Baltimore who basically treats behavior. There's, a, there's, a, there's, this, there's a branch of behavioral optometry that does not believe that the critical period closes. And they're this, they're this you know, very small underground group of behavioral optometrists. And they basically treat the amblyopic weak eye. They train this amblyopic weak eye as if it was preparing for a triathlon. And they do exercises and exercises and exercises, you know, just focusing distant and far, distant and far, tracking this object and doing just spatial frequency discriminations and and orientation discriminations. And they just work out the eye for hours and hours and hours. And many people, including Sue Berry, have seen a recovery of visual function as adults by this incredibly strenuous series of perceptual-based discrimination tasks. So I teamed up with Sue Berry's behavioral optometrist because we proposed that if you could do some type of binocular visual deprivation in adult, adult amblyopes, what it would do is lower the threshold for the type of perceptual learning that they were already enjoying some limited painful, slow success with. Success nonetheless, but slow. Anyway, I mean, it's a lovely hypothesis. I think it's a lovely hypothesis. And I think it's a, it's, it's a, it's a lovely way to think about how to use the plasticity that's being reactivated with the binocular deprivation to, to actually recover function in amblyopia. But it's also unrealistic, I think, to put it, to, to put an adult human, to give an adult human binocular visual deprivation for a prolonged period of time. There's a very small literature on it, and the literature comes from it's being explored as a use of, as, um, as torture. Because prolonged binocular visual deprivation causes severe visual hallucinations, which in and of itself is interesting. You probably are getting a deprivation and just scaling up of those excitatory synapses, and you start seeing trails and all kinds of visual imagery. There's a lot of papers on, uh, or some documents on the initial, uh, at the beginning of the Soviet uh, space program, and they put people for very, very long periods of time, more, probably more than a month. Yeah. Uh, now, that's, I think, the big. No, but these guys put them for a long period of time. Yeah. So there is a so 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 there's a lot of, there's a lot of side effects, mm. and so uh, our, our our goal 
is not to find a way to make binocular visual deprivation applicable to humans. Our goal is to find a way to block binocular input, not binocular vision, but binocular input, to allow a specific reduction only in the binocular region of the visual cortex. And the way we do it is uh, the nasal aspect of each of the two retinal humans have about 50% crossover. So 50% of retinal ganglion cells uh, synapse onto contralateral LGN and 50% stay in the ipsilateral. And the temporal aspect, the, 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 the temporal aspect of the retina stays on the ipsilateral side. The nasal aspect of the retina crosses over to the contralateral side. So what we are proposing to do is to block input into the nasal aspect of the retina and just block the cross pathway. And if we do this, what you do is render the uh, visual space into a purely monocular visual Purely by the visor or what? And it's um, tape on plastic glasses. Mm-hmm. But what about doing that in rats? It's hard to do in rats because rats have 90% crossover. So all we would leave them with is a little sliver of severe peripheral vision. And so the, the reason why it works in humans is because we have a complete left visual hemifield that is monocular and a complete right visual hemifield is monocular. So if you lose monocular vision, you lose depth perception, but you have a seamless visual field in about 120 degrees. It's just monocular. No, but what about putting the... For some reason, I got it backwards. So we want to block. So we want to block the input in the, into the binocular region. Oh, I see. And so in rodents, uh, we would have to block the, the input to the 90% of retinal ganglion cells that crossover, so it's the whole nasal aspect, except no, for this little teeny sliver of binocular. The binocular, there's a very small amount of binocular, of very few numbers of binocular neurons and rodents and lots of us. I'm not getting it backwards. Yeah. I yeah. think it's because yeah. you described that there were, it was 40%, 40 degrees or 40% of the fields. I'm and thinking about binocular. overlapping different maps. Yeah. Uh, but I think you're saying that then from this, then you have a huge crossover. You will have to cover a lot of that, and then you will be left with not that much. You're right, Todd. You're right, Todd. I'm sorry. Well, the thing that we can do with humans, though, is we can actually we can we can map the reset we can map the visual hemifield, and uh, we can't do that with rodents. But it'd be an interesting thing to try. Rodents aren't very tolerant of stuff in their face. And so we've tried, actually, when we do the reverse deprivation surgery, we actually have to sew the other eye closed because we've tried um, patching. We've tried harnesses that, that hold a patch in front so that we can test just the emergence of the monocular spatial acuity from the, the chronically deprived eye. And they just won't, they won't, what about contact they won't tolerate it. When they use them in the poultry industry... So they're trying to get the user. Yeah, there are. There's a. There's a. There's a. There, there's a company in uh, in 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 Israel that um, has the ability to make rodent contact lenses. Uh-huh. I know they make them for cats also. For huh. for uh, the poultry industry uses that all the time, like by the million. Cheap. Lots for the chickens. Lenses on chickens, they make them blurry so they don't peck uh, on the neighbor. They're very violent. So when you put two or three chickens in the same cage, they will. Kill each other, and before they will saw the, the beak, right? That's inhumane. Nice. 
No. Anyway, but before I didn't just like put them and I caught it. That's in commit. So now they make uh, millions of uh, eyeglasses that blur their vision. So they don't know that there's another chicken next, another five million chickens around them, and they don't kill each other. So, that's, is, is that's Island, amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is eyelid suture the same thing as light deprivation? Because I kind of imagine this to be some sort of <coughs> the light-induced immediate early gene pathway cascade, you know, transcription factors turning on and then something happening with some signaling cascade. But eyelid suture isn't light deprivation, is it? No, it's pattern vision, it's deprivation yeah. of pattern vision. So this doesn't have to do with light. And it's, it's a very important distinction because you still get luminescence through the mm. through the closed eyelid. Mm. This is like the chickens in the glass. Um, mm-hmm. With the blur, yeah. With the blur? With the blur. Okay. Anyway, thank you for thank you for joining us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to end this. <laughs>